kind of let's, let's segue, let's talk this morning, um, let's kind of prepare for our, our scripture from Luke chapter 7, an encounter, uh, an experience if you will, uh, a conversation through messengers between John the Baptist and Jesus. And this scripture will introduce just a very short series we're going to do, just two weeks, this week and next week. And we're going to, I'm going to revisit some of my experiences in Kenya. When I came back last month, and if you're a guest with us today, um, in the last month I spent 10 days in, in Kenya around Nairobi. And I shared with you that I wanted to, to share some of these experiences with you and with VBS and other things. I, I haven't really tapped into that. And so I want to do that just for a couple weeks. And the scripture that frames these two sermons is this one from Luke chapter 7. Also found in Matthew, I believe, chapter 11, found in Mark, this experience, this, this interchange between Jesus and John the Baptist. And it, it kind of came to me, you know, God kind of placed it on my heart toward the end of my time in Kenya. One of the last nights I was there, we were sitting around a campfire and we were just sharing some of our experience, some of our thoughts. And, and I began to think a little bit about what I wanted to bring back. And this is the scripture that, that came to me that, that I kind of just kind of jumped into my mind and, and into my, to my memory as I thought about that. And, and I'll kind of set that up. But, uh, but let's, let's turn to the scripture. Now, here's our, here's our setting. This is what's going on, if you're not familiar. John the Baptist, who we get introduced to in the Gospels fairly early. John the Baptist, who is the wild child. You know, that's, if you see Jesus movies, Jesus of Nazareth or Son of Man or some of these movies over the years, John the Baptist is always the, the kind of um, the unkempt, you know, long beard, just kind of almost like the crazy guy. That, that's kind of how we picture John the Baptist. If you remember in the Gospel, it says he, he wore um, skins made of, or, or clothes made of camel skins, and he ate locusts. And I mean, he was just kind of out in the wilderness, and he's preaching, and he's baptizing, and he's preparing the way for the Lord. And he finds himself, because of his unrelenting faithfulness to his message, for his willingness to call even people in power to accountability, and he does to the king, King Herod, he finds himself in prison. And so this man of the open spaces finds himself in a dungeon, if you will, this dark, confined space, and it begins to, to play on his mind, as it would with any of us. And that's what kind of sets up this question that he asks. And so I want to turn now to John, I mean, sorry, Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. And this is what we read. John's disciples told him about all these things, these things referring to the previous chapters, the stuff Jesus was teaching and doing and the miracles he was performing. So they told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we expect someone else? Now, let me hold on that verse for a second. Are you the one who was to come, or shall we expect someone else? Now, that is a fair question. That's an understandable question. I think we've all, in our journey of faith, if, if you've come to faith, that's a question you've asked. Jesus, are you the one? You know, is this truth? Is this real? Is this, is this the, the faith that, that God has, has called us to? So that, that question in and of itself is not startling. The person who asked the question is startling. John the Baptist asked the question. Why is that startling? Because John's the one that baptized Jesus. John's the one who was there in the, the Jordan River, and he sees Jesus coming, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And remember, he points at Jesus, and he says, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he baptizes Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes and lands on Jesus. He sees it. He hears the voice of God. Beloved, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John was there in a front row seat that most of us can only imagine what it must have been like. He experienced it. But now he's asking a question. Are you the one, or shall we expect someone else? And kind of that question is, are you the one, or did I kind of maybe get it wrong? Did I think, was I was I at a place? Again, he's in a really dark place in his life. So he asks this question. He sends to Jesus, and this is the response. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who was to come, or shall we expect someone else? I have to believe this wasn't a comfortable question for them to ask, but they did. At, the very time Jesus, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And indeed, friends, we pray God would bless these moments, this reading of his word. Let us, let us pray. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your word, your challenge, your invitation to us today. These moments that we give, I pray that they're yours, blessed by your Holy Spirit, and that you would use us to your purpose, to your call, and to greater faithfulness. Call us to greater faithfulness. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. Are you the one who was to come, or shall we expect another one? Is someone else coming? I, I, I love this encounter. And, and primarily when I've, when I've preached it, when I've read about it, when i focused on it, I find comfort in the fact that Jesus does not condemn or criticize John in this place. In this, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say what, what many of us might be thinking, which is, John, how could you think this? How could you believe this? How could you be doubting right now after what you've seen and what you experienced? Jesus doesn't do that. And I find that of great comfort because most of us, if not all of us, in our journey of faith, in the ups and downs of life, in our experiences, we have what I call John the Baptist in the dungeon moments. Moments when we feel that darkness, we feel that way, and we wonder, God, where are you? Is, is, this, is this real? Is, are you here? And so, so in many ways, Jesus affirms John, and he does it with these words. And these were the words that began to, to kind of to frame my thinking. You go back and you tell John what you have seen and what you've heard. And then he qualifies that, what you've seen and what you've heard. The, 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 the blind receive sight. The, the, um, the lame are made well. Those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. You go back and you tell John the things you have witnessed. The evidence of my kingdom. He, he doesn't point, and I, and I find it interesting, he doesn't point to crowds. He doesn't say, you go back and you tell John how many people are coming to hear me. He doesn't say, you go back and you tell John how eloquent my words are, necessarily. Or what a powerful preacher I am, that Jesus was all of those things and crowds were coming. But he says, you go back and you point to the work of the kingdom. You point to the things that are being done. 
the lives that are being changed, the difference that ministry and my presence here in this world and in this place and at this time, you point to the difference it's making in the lives of people who are hearing the gospel. That's what he says to John. You tell him what you've seen and what you've heard. And that became my thoughts. How do I come back and share with you experiences half a world away the impact of what I have seen and what I've heard and how it is making a difference in the lives of others for the kingdom of God. And so I started to think about some of the people I met. And so for two weeks, what I want to do is I just want to introduce you to a couple folks. I want you to do a couple folks that I met when I was in Kenya. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But before I do that, I, I, I want to... I want to talk about relationships for a second, kind of seeming like I'm jumping the tracks, but, but hopefully this will tie in. You'll see where I'm going. <laughs> when we celebrate relationships, the best of our human relationships, friendships, you think about the people in your life that have journeyed life with you, whether it be for a short time or a long time, but the people that have mattered the most, the people that, that you love the dearest, those friends that have come alongside you in, in part or all of your journey. You think about those kind of special relationships we have. When you think about um, the best uh, that uh, of other best the best of, of a marriage, the best of a parent-child relationship or a sibling relationship. I mean, there's any ways that we can categorize the most meaningful, significant relationships in our lives. But when we celebrate those, what we celebrate, what we reflect on, what we what we cherish are those moments in lives, in time, in in our, our journey. When our hearts align with the heart of another person, when, when hearts join together, our spirits feel a deep and intimate and a powerful connection. And, and they can be with people who are vastly different than us, who, who think differently and see the world differently, but something about who we are and what we value and, and, and the core of, of our, our identity connects deeply with another human being. And those become our most cherished relationships. And hopefully as I'm even sharing these words, you're, you're thinking about those people in your life who your heart and their heart have aligned in some way. And it's, and it's not always easy to communicate. It's not always easy to express in words. But you just know it. And you felt it and it's real. And I, and I started to think about that alignment of, of heart and spirit. And, and our relationship with others in connection to the way that our relationship with God works. What God celebrates, what God desires are men and women who not only experience and hear and believe the good news of Jesus, not only trust in, in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of life, but who begin to, to seek to align their hearts with his heart. Begin to value what God values, cherish what God cherishes, see as God sees. Begins to understand life lived in this intimate and powerful and significant relationship, begin to move in the same direction, if you will. That becomes the best of, of witness, the best of, of life, as a life intimately and powerfully connected with God. What I got to experience in Kenya, and I've experienced in other places in life too, are some people whose lives and hearts were deeply connected with God's, who saw God at work, who saw God engaging in blessing lives and said, I want to be a part of that. I want to step into those opportunities so that I will value what you value. I will love as you love. I will 
care as you care, and my heart will be your heart. And so those are the kind of, some of the kind of people I met there. And, I, and as I said, I want to introduce you to a couple. And the first one I want to introduce you to this morning is, uh, is Pastor Susan. And bear with me for just a second because I lost my connection. There we go. Pastor Susan, I think this is Pastor Susan. Now, this is not, a, this is not the best picture. I know you cannot make out faces and stuff, so you're just going to have to let me kind of explain it a little bit because this is the only picture of Pastor Susan I got. I don't know how I did that. We had some group pictures taken, but they weren't on my camera. Pastor Susan is the woman. She's kind of about the middle of the screen. She's the furthest from us in the picture. And um, she's a woman whose life has powerfully lined up with the values and the vision of God. She is in ministry in one of the most unique and difficult settings I have ever experienced in my life. And that community, that place in Nairobi is called Kibera. Now, Kibera is the largest slum of Nairobi. I want to try to give you some pictures. Now, these pictures cannot begin to capture the, the experience. But they are significant nonetheless. And for whatever reason... Let me, give me just one second. Um, this is what we saw. And this is what we would. Cassie, go to, go to slide number one for me, please. This is, uh, this is Kibera. This is the largest slum of Nairobi. It is six and a half miles long. Six and a half miles of seeing what you're seeing on that screen. Cassie, kick to two for me, please. It is... One of the most difficult places I've ever walked, by, by s probably modest estimations, half a million people live in this six-mile radius. Stop at that one for me, Cass. Thank you. Each of these shacks that you see, this is lining one of the streams there in Kiberia. These are homes. These are homes. These are where people live. I kid you not, I walked into a home of a family of six, a few of us did, we were taken by Pastor Susan, to the home of a family that she's in ministry with. Six people, mom, dad, four children, in a room that was no wider than this stage to that chair and no deeper than, than I'm standing to the corner. Ten by ten. I'm not exaggerating. That's not, that's not me trying to kind of sensationalize the point. It was a ten by ten. I have no idea how ten pe or six people lived in that small space. But that was their home. That was their home. And that was not the uncommon. We visited others like that. It is poverty at a level I have never experienced in my life. Now, some of you, maybe, maybe you've been to parts of Africa like this. Maybe you've been to Haiti. Uh, maybe you've been to India, which has some of this kind of poverty. But it is extensive, and it is it's tough to grasp. And this is one slum among many. In Kenya, 83% of the population sustains on less than $50 a month, the equivalency. If you make between five, well, let me actually back this up. If you make over $5,000 a month, so roughly $60,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of income earners in Kenya. If you make over $500 a month, in Kenya, you are in the top 8% of income earners. 
if you make between five and fifty dollars a month you are among 43 percent of the population and if you make less than five dollars a month you are among 40 percent of the population 83 percent of the population under well under what we would consider a poverty line and many of them live in communities just like this one and it is into this place that pastor susan stepped in in this picture we're walking down to one of the, um, the homes that she was taking to us to visit. Actually, that home I was just telling you about. And this um, was just part of the journey, walking through these, these kind of um, really kind of alleyways. Here's one of the pictures. This is Gloria walking through some of these alleys that people go to get to their homes in mud and um, liquids, you know. I mean, just... The, 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 the smell, I mean, there's no running water. There's no plumbing. There's no bathrooms. There, I mean, it's, it's I, again, I can't begin to, to communicate what, what this was like. And, and my point isn't just to, to tell you about the poverty level, but to tell you about people, let me go back to her, like Susan, who have stepped into that place, who have stepped into um, Kybera because... They believe it's where God has called them to make a difference. It's where they believe that God has called them to begin to engage in the acts of, of ministry, the acts of love, that can become the testimonies of what we've seen in here. Her ministry, Pastor Susan's heart began for children. It is for children. This is the sign outside her ministry center. Okay, the Hope and, and Restoration Center, uh, caring for children. She has a ministry there that reaches over 150 kids in Kibera. Now, we walked into the, the space for ministry, if you will. It was a room about half the size of one of our Sunday school rooms. Next to it was another room about the same size. The, room, the roof next to it had collapsed in the recent rains. Because in Kibera, there's no garbage cans. In fact, if you remember that picture of the stream, people just throw their trash. Trash everywhere, including on roofs. These are, these are tin roofs. These are, you know, fabricated metal. But these are buildings. These are homes. And I'm not, that if you, most of us wouldn't store our garage stuff in it. We just wouldn't. You know, it's not safe. It's not going to hold. The, it's going to leak. All those things. This is where they live. And she has a heart for children. So in this space, in these, these two rooms, she, oh, in the course of a week, will have 150 kids come through that she can tell about Jesus that they can share stories. She has some of, of volunteers that help in the heart of Kibera. Now, I was thinking about that just this week in the fact that for Vacation Bible School, we had 150 kids in here. And we talked about how maxed our space was. I talked about that. We were using every corner. I don't know how we're going to get any more kids in here. Now, you take a, two rooms that are no bigger than this stage and imagine 150 kids coming through. Now, they're not all there at once, to be fair. They're not jamming 150 kids in that, but that are coming through. Because she saw this need. She saw this opportunity. And she deeply, and what was so powerful is I saw in her and I heard in her a woman whose heart was deeply connected to God's heart. Whose question every day that she wakes up is, Lord, what are you doing and how can I be a part of it? And how can I be a part of it in this place that most of us would run from? Because I want to be honest with you. As I walked through Kibera, and we spent half the day walking through the streets of Kibera, we spent half the day walking into these places and visiting with people. 
as, as powerful as their testimony was, as welcoming as they were. Let me tell you what, that family of six that lived in that room, they invited five of us into their house. Gladly. They were thrilled we were there. They couldn't wait to just share that moment with them. I'm thinking, we don't like to have people at our house if our house is dirty. And they wanted us there, and they wanted us to pray and to, to do a blessing over them. They're, Kenya is a Christian nation. 80% of the population identifies as Christian. And they, the, the work of God, even in these places, is amazing. But her story, she didn't live in Kibera. She wasn't in that socioeconomic class. She had, if you will, escaped that reality. But every day she chose to step back into it. Me, I'm walking around for half a day. And I'll be honest, there was a part of me that was like, man, I can't wait till this is over. Because this is hard to see. This, I, I said to a friend, I, you, you go to a place like that, and then you turn to the Gospels and you read Jesus say, it's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If that doesn't make you squirm, you are not paying attention. And, and, and the smells and the sights, I was like, wow. It was overwhelming, it was powerful, but there was a part of me that was like, I just kind of want to go on. I want to kind of move on from this experience. And yet I see people like Pastor Susan and others who chose to walk back into it because they recognize that in this place they can make a difference. Now she's never going to have a story that's going to attract thousands. She's never going to have her face on a billboard. You're never going to read a book by, probably by Pastor Susan. If it wasn't for me, you'd never have heard the name. But that doesn't matter because that's not why she's doing it. She sees an opportunity to engage and that challenged me because so many of us move the opposite direction. I very often move the opposite direction because there are so many needs all around us. I celebrate her story not because I think that we're all called to this, but because I want to challenge us to, to ask ourselves, do we see need? And see, what happens a lot of times that we do, we really do see the need. We see needs all around us in, in any number of ways in people's lives. They're, they're the obvious needs for food and shelter and, 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 and uh, care of that, medical care, health care. But there's also other needs that are all around us. We see people that struggle uh, mentally and emotionally. I, I read a statistic that blew my mind this week. It said 48% of college students um, receive mental health counseling. 48%. Now, I don't know where that statistic came from. I need to go back that up. That sounds way high to me. But 48% because young people deal with anxiety and depression and um, um, relational problems. The, the statistics went on, and this actually I did verify from, from a study from Duke University, as a matter of fact. 30% of young people have thought about suicide. 30%. That's troubling for, for a parent of two young people. That's trouble for anybody. 30%, 23% young people self-harm in some way. 9% have tried to end their life. And, and, and we see this need and we think, oh my gosh, it is so significant. But it's not just at that, that end, the other end. At the, at the at retirement age, the struggles don't cease. Many of you know that. It doesn't. Financial struggles, anxiety, the same kind of troubles. 20% of those over the age of 65 need counseling. I don't say that. That's not a joke. They, they need. The reason I say need is because studies say that as we get older, we're less likely to get it. What happens is, as we get older, we become less likely to seek and to receive help. But the problems and the challenges don't go away. And so we see this. We look at the world around us. We see so much brokenness. We see so much need. We see so much hurt. And what happens to so many of us is, is we react emotionally. We get sad about it or we get angry about it. 
But then it overwhelms us. We think, what can we do? And too many of us then disengage. They just, somebody needs to do something. But hear what that means. Somebody who's not me needs to do something. Because that's not my mess. Or it's not my problem. That's, that's the mentality that, that creeps in. And it's, it's the same thing that happens when we're kids. When I was a child, it used to make me crazy when mom or dad would ask me to clean up a mess that wasn't mine. I had two brothers. Our house was always a wreck. Most of the time, it was their fault. <laughs> and so mom or dad would see something and say, Chris, can you clean that up? And so what's my initial reaction? That's not my mess. Brian did that. David did that. And I learned didn't matter. If I was part of the family, that was my mess to clean up. And it's generational because sometimes I'll say to Cassie, Cassie, would you pick that up? Well, that's Ryan's mess. Or Ryan will say, that's Cassie's mess. And what I try to teach them is the same thing that I've had to learn. We're part of a family. We're connected. It's, we all have a responsibility here. And I think that's what, what Jesus wants us to hear. We, we do have some ownership there. When, when Jesus calls us, he, he, he wins us, he reminds us, he empowers us, he, he overwhelms us with his love, with the truth of the gospel that says you're forgiven, you're set free. Life is given through faith. But it, it comes back to kind of what Jesus said to those messengers. You go back and you tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. How do our lives begin to then witness to our faith? How do we begin to live in such a way like Pastor Susan, where we see a need and we, rather than retreat from it, willingly step into it? Willingly engage. That becomes our great challenge. And I'm not saying this is the way to do it. I don't know that I'll ever be back in Kenya again. I don't know that God's point of having me there was to call me to somehow be involved in that kind of ministry. I don't know. I'm anxious to see what God does with it. But what I do know is what I can learn from her is I want my life to be lived in such a way that when somebody spends time with me, they go back to their others and go, wow, you know what? We saw in spending some time with him what God was doing. We saw God at work because Chris was willing to step into places of need. That's your challenge if you've come to Christ. If you've given that life, if you've said Jesus come in, then the question becomes, how are you engaged in the work of the kingdom? Healing the sick, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, the dead are raised, good news is preached and proclaimed. Proclamation doesn't just happen by what we say, but it happens even more powerfully by what we do, what we give testimony to by the way that we live our lives. I went yesterday morning, got up, I was asked, first time I had an opportunity to do this, I went to uh, Publix in Lakewood Ranch on Saturday mornings that we do our food distribution. They, uh, they give us breads and, and desserts and stuff that, are, that the volunteers put out and give to, to, the, to the guests, to the clients that come through to our food pantry, some of you that are part of that ministry. Well, I had told Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Racky, a few months ago, I said, I'll go pick that up some Saturday. So he had called me and said, can you do it, you know? yesterday. Can you do it that Saturday? I said, sure. So I got it. First time I did that. And I drove back there. You go behind at the loading dock and they have everything waiting for you. And I loaded it all up and I put it in the car. And then they ask you to sign. They have a, a, a clipboard. 
and they ask you to sign off so they know it was picked up by the right organization. And it's also a voucher that it's being given away that you're not selling or, or keeping for yourself. And on that clipboard, it had a slot for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, every day that they, gi- that they give away um, breads and desserts. And I started to look at those who had signed off ahead of me. And every one of them was an organization that was meeting the needs of people that were hurting and hungry in the name of Jesus. They were all Christian ministries. Now, I'm not saying that only Christian ministries care for the poor. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying on this example, on this day, every organization was an organization that said, because we love Jesus, we're going to step into this. And we're going to care for the people that Jesus loves. Not just us. We're going to care for the people that Jesus loves. That's proclamation. That's proclamation. It was a sermon right there. This is what the kingdom looks like. I want to share with you as we, uh, and as I close this morning, as I am challenging you to think through your own life, Want to, uh, I want to read this to you. This is uh, a part of an article I came across by a writer by the name of Matthew Paris. Matthew Paris grew up in Malawi, Malawi in Africa, a couple countries south of Kenya where I was, still part of Central Africa. He is an atheist. This is not a, a testimony of a Christian, but he went back to his hometown, to his home country, I should say, and, um, and saw the work that was being done there by missionaries and Christians. And this is what he wrote. I want you to hear. This is just a portion of it. He said, this visit, he said, it inspired me. Renewing my flagging faith in development charities. Traveling in Malawi, sorry, refreshed another belief too. One I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. And that is the word that challenges me. What is it that the world needs to see in me that they know the world is better for? What is it about Jesus reflecting in me? What are the things in my life that I need to be willing to step into so that others will see Jesus, that others will testify to what they've seen and heard? It doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to touch thousands of lives. It may touch one. But here's the thing. You're called to it, to align your heart with God's heart to see what God sees and to fight that tendency 
to disengage, to find that tendency that I felt to just get out of there and away from where it's hard and where it hurts and where it stings and where life is challenging, but to step into it, whatever place that may be, and to be the witness and to be the testimony, to be the evidence of Christ that you've been called to be. That's my challenge, and I know it's yours. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, that we would that we'd hear your command to us to be about the places you've called us to be, to, to be about the work that you were about, caring for the hurting, reaching out to the afflicted, proclaiming the good news. Lord, may that be the truth of our lives. May that be the power of our testimony, not just in what we say, but always in what we do. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen and amen.